Thank you, Ella. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. On Thursday evening, as we began our devotional at prayer meeting, we were considering the fact that light travels at 186,000 miles per second, that there are some places across, known places across the universe that would take thousands of years to reach traveling at that speed and to realize that our God is the creator, the sustainer of all that and that the very one in whose presence we've come this morning to remember in his broken body and shed blood, the one to whom we have come to sing and to sing about is the very one who has tasted death for us, endured all that went into crucifixion, We can perhaps, in a very vague way, sympathize with some of the physical pain, but the enormous spiritual pain of being separated from the Father and the one in, in whom was no sin partook of our sin and bore it in his own body is really beyond us to understand. And so I'd like you to keep those thoughts in mind as we consider the wonders of this chapter. Verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene, early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's quite an identifying label. The disciple whom Jesus loved. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. And the other disciple, John, did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead, Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord. Notice that possessiveness about it. They have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. He saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? 
She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. I wonder how she was planning to do that. Put his dead body over her shoulder and carry him away? I wonder how she was intending to do it. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Why would he want to do that? Would you really want to put your finger in somebody's wound? And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered, and said unto him, This is a direct address. He said unto him, that's Epinuto, he said directly to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas called Jesus God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but... These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. It's a lengthy portion of scripture, but one that is so full of practical meaning and relevance to us. Let's bow together and ask God to help us to grasp this. Our Father, we are very thankful for the Gospel of John the gospel of salvation through belief, the gospel that presents to us the wonders of the person and something of the work and a little of the program that Jesus is interested in in relation to us. We thank you for your faithfulness in giving and preserving this portion of Scripture. Now we desire that the Spirit of God would 
use this text to draw us a little closer to the Lord Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. The Gospel of John is really a fascinating book. All the chapters, all 879 verses. It's a fascinating portion of Scripture because it presents to us something of the deity of Christ. In John chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in that verse, he is stressing the eternality of Christ. Only deity is eternal. Only God is uncaused, the uncaused causer of all things. How thankful we can be that there is an uncaused causer, the one who is the stable force in all of the universe, in all of time and throughout eternity. It's a fascinating book because in chapter 1 and verse 9, he is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And in that we may look at going back into the the book of, I was going to say the gospel of Isaiah, but it's the prophecy of Isaiah. It really is the gospel of Isaiah too. In looking at in chapter 60, where God, Jehovah himself, is described as the light. And Jesus is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. In chapter 8, in verse 58, he identifies himself, Jesus identifies himself as the one who appeared at the burning bush in Exodus 3, verse 14. The I am, the ever-coming, ever-loving, ever-living one, Jehovah himself. And then in our own chapter before us, Thomas addressing Jesus and called him God. Jesus didn't say, oh, stop, that's blasphemy. You mustn't call me God, if he wasn't God. But Jesus pronounced a blessing upon him for that realization and for those who would be saved in time to come simply through belief. I don't remember this, but in 1867, just a day or two before my entrance into this world, there was a great world fair in Chicago. And one of the things that they did in that world fair was they had representatives from many different religions, world religions. And they had esteemed high-profile characters representing Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and so on. And then somebody got the idea at the very last minute that they really should have somebody there to represent Christianity. And all of these esteemed characters stood there in all of their garb and ritual and said what they had to say. Then they had a little old Baptist pastor. And he came and he stood at the pulpit and he said, I know of a lady who is only about five minutes from this place and she has only a short time to live, only a few hours. And then he said, and what can Mohammed do for her? And he looked at the other esteemed individuals and he said, and what can Buddha do for her? What can Lao Tzu do for her? And he went on through the list and there was silence. And he said, I'd like to tell you about Jesus who can save her and forgive her sins. And he preached a brief gospel message. The same Jesus that we have before us here who tasted death and who was victorious over death. In all of the history of humanity, there has only been one person 
who has raised themselves from the dead. And that was Jesus. We know from Romans 4 and verse, verse 25 that Jesus was raised for our justification. Our justification declares us to be righteous. He declares that those who exercise faith in him, he declares them to be just. Not because they're just in their actions, but because they're given that position of justification. How thankful we can be that with all of the authority in his person and who he is and what he has accomplished, he has declared those who exercise faith in him to be just. Now, in the, in the chapter before us, there are two responses to the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, looking at verses 3 down through 10, there is the response of the disciples. What was their response when the, the idea that Jesus is alive? How did they respond to that information? Well, in verses 3 down through 7, there was, first of all, excitement. They ran to the tomb. And Peter and John were the runners. John, it is assumed, was younger, maybe, maybe a little more agile because of his youthfulness, but he got there first. But maybe there was another reason why John got there first. And it might not simply be his physical ability to run or his age. It might simply have been that this was the disciple that Jesus loved. And with that realization, there was motivation that got him there first. What was wrong with Peter? Was it because he had spent a lot of time out on the water and had some kind of an arthritic condition? Not likely. You see, just a very short time before this, Peter had denied even knowing who Jesus was, and he used bad language to emphasize his point. Could it be that there was a measure of guilt, a measure of, I feel embarrassed, I feel ashamed? Very likely. But whatever the reason was, they didn't waste any time in getting to where they thought Jesus might be. John stopped at the door. There was a sense of reverence in the face of death and all the suffering that was involved in that death, a measure of respect. And yet we see Peter, true to his character as we know him, at least on the pages of Scripture, arriving there at the tomb and running right in and, and being Peter, sort of speaking and then thinking and acting and then thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And he went right in. And then John bent down and looked in and, and walked in. And the text tells us in verse 8 that he believed. In light of the resurrection, there really should be excitement. There should be belief. Not only in the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, but he is able to carry through with all of the promises that he has made. In this same gospel in chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, he gives us a promise of the rapture. How thankful we can be for that blessed hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus. When we consider John bending down, looking into the tomb, and then perhaps 
very gently entering into, at least into the entryway of the tomb itself. Now, he had evidently believed what Mary said, at least believed it enough to go running to the tomb. But then he believed, he recognized the truth of the resurrection itself. Does it take time to grow spiritually? Yes, it does. Sometimes it takes more than time. Sometimes it takes a little bit of pain, a little bit of hard experience, a little bit of those things that we wouldn't choose for ourselves if we had a choice. Jesus didn't rebuke the disciples on this occasion. Thomas wasn't, wasn't involved in this, but he got involved in the latter end. Here we find Peter and John sort of up front with the news of the resurrection and then belief beginning to dawn in their hearts. It takes time to grow spiritually. It takes time to allow what we have in our head to filter into our heart, that we act and think and speak and and plan on the basis of God's truth. But there was a third response. In verses 9 and 10, I see acceptance or growth in the truth, accepting of the teaching that Jesus had given. Didn't we read earlier, haven't we read earlier, not today of course, but in our own reading in Matthew chapter 12 about the sign of Jonah? Didn't Jesus teach Jonah chapter 1 in verse 17 that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in that great fish that the Son of Man would be in the tomb for three days and three nights? Yes, they had been taught that. And I'm, I'm sure that it was in their head, but it hadn't crystallized in their thinking, in their understanding. Were they unfamiliar with Psalm 16? Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, in Sheol? There was no doubt many times when they had read Psalm 16 in verse 10. The information was there, but... That, that didn't relate to the person of the Lord Jesus, the fact that he would die in their place. Or Psalm 22, where there is that acknowledgement that they pierced my hands and my feet. And yet, just a few verses down, verse 22, the very fact that, <clears throat> that he would sing forth his praises, he would declare unto his brethren, what had been accomplished. In Psalm 22, there is the realization of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Had they not ever read Psalm 22? No doubt they had read it many, many times. Or in Isaiah 53, and this is not really very often looked at, so just turn with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 53. Notice in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Who is the all we? Is there anyone in the history of humanity who has never gone astray? Not at all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. What an amazing statement. There is growth and it takes time. It takes perseverance. 
It takes all that is, and God is willing to give us all the time that is needed for our growth in our understanding of who he is and what he has done. In his life and his death and his resurrection and his present ministry, we are presented with his love, his grace, his justice, and those characters, characteristics of the one with whom we will spend eternity. How thankful we can be that Jesus is not only alive in heaven, but alive here in our midst. Let's sing thoughtfully, carefully together, just verse 1 of Christ the Lord is risen today. Just verse 1 of Christ the Lord. We've been talking about the response of the disciples. It's appropriate for us to say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, in light of the fact that we serve and know and interact with one who is alive, not just an idea or a historic character, but one who is alive. I'd like you to consider with me the response of Mary, Mary Magdalene, one from whom seven demons had been cast out by Jesus, going back into Mark chapter 15 and verse 9. Her love for Jesus appears to be maybe a little more intense, maybe a little deeper, maybe a little more intelligent than that of the disciples. Now, we're not trying to put anyone down, but we do have to face the facts of what appears on the pages of Scripture. Her love for Jesus left her at the tomb when the others left. She was standing there, and I picture this in the early morning, perhaps the sun just beginning to appear over the horizon, perhaps with the mist or the dew on the grass, in the quietness of the garden, in a place of death, not not the kind of place people would really like to spend time in. And she's standing there at the tomb. She had been forgiven much. And the text of Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 7 that she loved much. She loved the Lord. It would seem as if maybe she had been paying a little more attention to what he had to say. I suspect that was the case. She seemed to have a greater understanding of the truth of the resurrection. Not perfect by any means, but greater. Enough to keep her there at the tomb. To keep her, in spite of her sorrow and her tears. We find her on the first day of the week. The very first Sunday. And a change imminently in dispensations. And she's standing there alone at the tomb in perhaps, perhaps very dim lighting. And she's grieving deeply in her own heart. The Sabbaths were finished as an institution. We know that from Matthew 28, verse 1. The Sabbaths, plural, doesn't appear as plural in our English Bible, but it is plural were over, and now a new day, a new time, a new sacred day was instituted. Perhaps in Mary's mind, I'm not trying to read something into this, but just go back with me for a moment to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 17 
which says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Could it be that Mary, in her love for the Lord Jesus, was seeking for him early? Maybe there was in the back of her mind the idea that, yes, I've heard him talk about the resurrection. I've heard him say that he would be crucified and rise again from the dead. Perhaps Proverbs 8, verse 17, was in her mind as she tarried there at the tomb. Her love for Jesus overcame her fear of the dark, if she was afraid of the dark, and all the dangers of thieves and robbers and so on. And she stood there in kind of a miserable place, a graveyard, next to the grave of somebody that she knew and was dear to her. Her love for Jesus overcame her weariness. She could have been at home sound asleep. But her love for Jesus overcame that weariness and the dangers and the distance and all the, the darkness that surrounded the occasion. And ultimately, her love for Jesus led her to speak to others about him. When she left the tomb, what did she do? She went and talked about Jesus. She had something to say about him. In verses 11 and 12, we find her staying at the tomb, weeping, grieving, maybe sobbing. You can just picture her with all of the grief that was in her, looking down, stooping down, looking into the tomb. I wonder what she expected to see. Why would she do that? Maybe she expected to see Jesus there. Instead, she saw two angels, one at the head and the other at the feet. Why did, why did John tell us that? We know, just go with me for a moment to the first John, book of 1 John chapter 2. Very significant verse in verse 2 where it says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation is sometimes understood as the mercy seat. If we could go back into Exodus, we would find the Ark of the Covenant, and we would find the mercy seat covering the demands of the law, the two tables of stone, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the golden pot of manna, And over that was the mercy seat with the two angels with their wings outspread. Perhaps that's the imagery that we find here. The place where the blood was, the place where the angels were with their, perhaps their wings outstretched, one at the head and the other at the feet. The disciples didn't see that. But Mary did because she took the time to tarry in his presence. Then in verse 13, she spoke to the angels. The angels asked, Woman, why weepest thou? Why are you crying, Mary? The resurrection is a cause for joy. That sin has been defeated. Salvation has been provided for all who will receive it. It's a cause for joy, not tears not fearful waiting for eternal damnation, but a cause for joy. 
In verse 2, she talks about the Lord. But here, it's my Lord. There is a holy possessiveness. Faith is possessive. He is our Savior, my Savior. How thankful we can be that we can be possessive in a holy sense of the Lord Jesus. So she sought for Jesus. She came to the tomb. She stayed at the tomb. She spoke to the angels. And then she saw Jesus in verses 14 down through 18. It is said that Mary was the last one to leave the cross, but she's the first one to see the resurrected Jesus. She saw Jesus but didn't recognize him. You ever wonder why? Maybe it was because the lighting wasn't very good. Maybe she had tears in her eyes and she couldn't see very clearly. Maybe she was standing at a different angle from where he was and so she saw out of the corner of her eye a shape. She heard a voice, but she really didn't have a good, good view of him. Many different reasons. Maybe her emotional distress was clouding her ability to see and to perceive. Maybe she was just preoccupied with her thoughts and her sorrow and, and so on. And I've wondered, how often is Jesus close to us and we fail to see him? Does that ever happen on a Sunday morning as people come to gather to him, to worship him, and yet go through the whole meeting and not really see Jesus who is present? I don't mean optically, but to see him in that sense. It's entirely likely, and so we ought not to be unduly harsh on on Mary and be judging of her and so on. And Jesus asked her, Why are you crying, Mary? Why the tears? It's the same question that the angels asked. What is it that causes us grief? Perhaps a hundred things. But maybe it's a failure. The primary thing, the failure is to recognize or fail to recognize rather that Jesus is in fact present. In verse 16, Jesus spoke her name. Perhaps with kindness with the tenderness that she was familiar with during his earthly life. And then by that statement of her name, she recognized him. And her, her intent was perhaps to put her arms around him and to keep him. And he said, you can't do this. Don't touch me. Now, I don't think he was saying, Mary, you can't embrace me. I don't think he was saying that at all. But he was saying, Mary, you can't keep me physically now. I must go back to my father's house. I must ascend to my father. Her natural instinct would be, let's keep him. Let's keep him here as long as we can. But keep in mind that he would, in fact, later on make the statement, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There was an intensity that was, in fact, put in writing. And Mary called him Rabboni, which is literally my master. There's that holy possessiveness once again. And then in verses 17 and 18, she shared her knowledge. What did she do when she left the tomb? She went and she shared that she had seen the resurrected Jesus. 
Is it likely that those who know the Lord, who have met with him, who know something of his presence, would talk about him? Who was the person who was given the first instruction following the resurrection? It was Mary. Now, she was not the first woman preacher. There's no such legitimate thing. But she was given the first message, go and tell my brethren, my brothers and sisters, he is possessive of them. And it was Mary to carry that message for the very first time following the resurrection. The response of Mary and the response of the disciples were two very different responses. What might be our response, your response, or mine to the truth of the resurrection? I'd like us to sing together, Because He Lives. Because He Lives, we have a legitimate response to the fact of His resurrection. So let's sing that together, Because He Lives. <laughs>